Hi, I'm Susie On, in for Jen White, and this is Reset. Coming up later in the podcast, we'll get a poet's eye view of the COVID-19 epidemic. We could be attuned to the little things that bring us joy, that make us smile, that give us hope, that, that turn our attention to how people are helping one another in this time of need. But first, the COVID-19 epidemic is forcing us to use our electronic devices for just about everything, for work, for play, and to connect with our friends and family. As more people turn to remote setups, video chats, and live streaming, the FBI is warning of increased cybersecurity attacks. So what risks should we be aware of? And how can you protect yourself from hackers? Information security attorney Alexander Urbelis joins us now. He's founder and partner of Blackstone Law Group in New York. Alex, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, how are you holding up right now? Uh, I'm okay. I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I may have had the virus, uh, quite frankly, and and sort of coincidentally, I'm isolated, quarantined from my family at our place outside the city. I haven't seen my wife or my kids in about two weeks, but I've got my health back, uh, so I'm I'm thankful for that, and I hope I'm on the right track. Well, here's hoping to to good health uh, that continues on. I want to turn now to um, your your history with the Blackstone Law Group. First, you're a former hacker turned information security attorney. What led you to to start Blackstone Law Group? I was a hacker, but you know I think it's important to note that you know not all hackers are bad guys, right? Now, hacker used to be a good term, and I and I still think it it should be considered a good term, um, especially white hat hackers who try to. It, it's more of a mindset and a, and a sort of philosophy about life than it is about you know doing bad things. But yeah, certainly it was uh, my misspent youth that sort of led me down this path. But I'll tell you that we're, we're not your typical law firm. I'm I'm certainly not your your typical lawyer. I went to law school after working full-time in an information security department of a software company in New York, and combining my skill set with information security together with law, I wound up in uh, in some intelligence and defense roles, and then jumped back into the private sector. When I founded my law firm five years ago, we were determined to, to marry the practice of law together with the practice of information security. And, and in so doing, over the last several years, I created a, a threat intelligence platform that I call Omni. And that's how we wound up picking up some really significant uh, attacks against the World Health Organization recently. And, and as we mentioned earlier, the FBI recently issued warnings of teleconferencing hacking and increased fraudulent schemes related to COVID-19. What kind of cyber attacks are we seeing right now? Well, we're seeing quite a lot. We're seeing a significant rise in malicious actors targeting companies, VPNs or virtual private networks, any kind of remote services that have been stood up and and really any form of external link into a company's internal systems. What we're also seeing a lot more frequently are, are phishing lures that are and and certainly will leverage interest in the coronavirus and other items of interest, such as the the federal CARES program that's designed to put money into the pockets of needy Americans, protect small businesses, et cetera. We're also seeing phishing attacks exploiting other psychological pressure points for us during this global pandemic, such as providing health guidance, treatment information, Mm -hmm. vaccine availability, infection rates, uh, infection notifications for your area. We've seen a significant amount of phishing lures that are, are exploiting misinformation about that, uh, quarantine news, uh, distribution of, of fraudulent workplace procedures that may contain malware, workplace guidance, 
Uh, we've even seen domain names soliciting donations for the Center for Disease Control or, mm -hmm. or local disaster relief um, that um, ostensibly, would, you, you know, would, your donations would go directly to these relief organizations. But in reality, they've been entirely pocketed by fraudsters. Wow. Um, how would you suggest folks protect themselves against the, those types of fraudulent schemes? Well, there's there's quite a few different ways. I mean, I, I can't underestimate the importance of multi-factor authentication or MFA. Having multi-factor authentication in place takes you or an organization from being the, the proverbial low-hanging fruit to, to fruit that's sort of uh, quite near the top of the shelf, so to speak, um, and difficult to reach without standing on a chair. So, I mean, multi-factor authentication, using a password together with some other kind of, of challenge, whether it's uh, a six-digit code from something like Authy or Duo or Google Authenticator that's also associated with your account. I mean, it can be difficult to implement correctly and quickly for small businesses, but there are, are services from, from companies like Google and Duo that can layer on top of, of your portals pretty, pretty simply. And even personal accounts, our personal Gmail accounts, our GMX accounts, whatever they are, they also have the ability to be protected with multi-factor authentication. Upgrading those personal accounts to use MFA is super important. Another really good piece of advice is pretty obvious. Don't reuse passwords or mm -hmm. variations of a theme of your password between your work account and your personal accounts. Compromised personal accounts can lead to malware. Malware can lead to compromised devices, and compromised devices can lead right back to your employer's system. Yeah. Well, you know, folks, more folks are obviously working from home. Uh, that means there's a lot of video chat, live streaming. Uh, we're also seeing classes moving online and even social and religious events where people are streaming things online. Are people maybe more vulnerable to cyber attacks in this situation? And what risks are associated with, you know, these types of activities of these video chats and, and online streams? Workforces have had, you know, people working from home maybe 5%, 10% of the time, but now it's 100% of the time. So that means there's more personal devices, more off-premises endpoints, meaning computers being used to handle and process business-related data, including highly sensitive information like business plans and trade secrets, things that can, you know, that if compromised can represent existential threats to an organization. So companies need to now dedicate more IT resources, support uh, these remote working situations and, and deploy things like multi-factor authentication, virtual private networks, cloud-based document management systems. And no doubt, though, that because we are all in such a rush to get this done and secure it so quickly, Threat actors, the bad guys are going to take advantage of this. They're going to be more external links to internal systems, more copies of data on mm -hmm. personal devices, and ways that the criminals can get what they're after without actually compromising an organization. So the threat actors are going to be looking for things like configuration errors, lazy passwords, poor identity and access management practices, uh, among other mistakes that you know one could easily make when you're in a massive hurry to get several major projects uh, for working from home mm -hmm. done. So, you know, the, the second part of your question, it was really about Zoom, really, and, mm -hmm. and, Zoom, and Zoom bombing. You know, you can define this as the act of joining a, a Zoom conference to which one was not invited. You know, it's become quite the, the talk of the town. There is a simple fix for this, though. Don't create Zoom conferences without a passcode anymore. Zoom conferences can only be Zoom bombed 
if they do not have a passcode. So a simple passcode associated with your conference should be enough to keep the interlopers at bay, but it's really important not to reuse these passwords. Zoom has, has made some real valiant efforts, I have to say, to try to get the word out about these enhanced security procedures. Um, and they even have the ability for, um, for conferences to have uh, passcodes automatically generated mm -hmm. uh, at the time of initiation. No, the other I, part of that is probably try not to to post that Zoom meeting on on social media where you know anyone could find out you know where that meeting is taking place. Oh, that's a, a super important point, Susie, too, because some of the new Zoom meetings are secured by putting the passcode into the URL or into the web address, right? So if you post that web address with the passcode connected to it uh, on social media or on a web page, whatever you're going to be in a world of hurt. It's, mm -hmm. not going to be, it's not going to be fun. You mentioned the threat on the World Health Organization. I mean, last month you flagged a major cyber attack over there. What happened and, and how did you spot it? Part of what we do, we're very unique for a, a law firm, is that, you know, as I mentioned, we married the practice of law together with the, the, the practice of information security, and we provide threat intelligence about early stage indicators of cyber attacks for our clients. Now, our clients are... Are, we're very proud of our client base. They're some of the world's most recognizable companies in finance, healthcare, life sciences, other critical industries. To protect them, we seek out the bad guys. We find their infrastructure. We relay that intelligence ahead of activation to our clients. Now, I had detected malicious activity from the group that had targeted the World Health Organization on 13 March in the past. In fact, I had seen this particular group target other intergovernmental organizations several times, groups like the United Nations, groups like the uh, International Federation for the Red Cross and other IGOs. So I was waiting and watching and they activated some of their infrastructure. And, and to my dismay, what we found was a live attack on the World Health Organization on 13 March. Well. Well, we're, we're going to have to wrap it up here in just a, a moment. So what are some basic tips on how people can practice good cyber hygiene on a regular basis, and especially now in this, in this environment that we're in? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I think that, that we have to be realistic about this, too. I mean, we can rely on our security departments within our organizations, our CISOs. But ultimately, I think, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that, there is never going to be a technology that is going to be 100% effective with respect to stamping out fraud and abuse and phishing scams. Phishing scams have been around for a really, really long time for good reason. And what we're seeing now is, is, is to a certain extent, old wine in a new bottle, but things are more sophisticated. There are certain low-tech things that the malicious actors can do to increase the probability that those phishing lures get through to us. What I think we need to do is to be very skeptical, to recognize that our technologies and controls and processes, that while they may be excellent, they may be effective, they're not going to be 100% effective. And that is certainly going to be the case when we're dealing with the exploitation of certain psychological triggers, human triggers that relate to this global health pandemic we are experiencing with the coronavirus. So I think rely on technology to a certain extent, but that gray matter that we have between our brains uh, between our ears, rather, and, and hopefully within our brains as well, is actually, I think, the most advanced piece of technology we have with respect to sniffing out fraud. 
If something doesn't feel right, trust your instincts, report it to your information security departments, share intelligence with each other. Uh, because when you report this information to, let's say, your colleagues, your information security departments, you're sharing intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's the way that we're going to get over this thing. We are all in it together. We've got to share what we know mm -hmm. um, and we'll make it through. All right. Well, that's information security attorney Alexander Urbelis. He is partner and founder of Blackstone Law Group in New York. Alex, thanks for speaking with us and stay safe. Only a pleasure. Thank you. You too, Susie. April is National Poetry Month. Poetry is emotion in words. It can soothe or it can slap you in the face. It can whisper our greatest fears or shout our biggest achievements. So we wanted to get some perspective on the COVID-19 crisis from Chicago poet Kevin Koval. Kevin's the author of more than a dozen books, the artistic director of Young Chicago Authors, and the founder of the youth poetry slam Louder Than a Bomb. Kevin, welcome back to Reset. Hey, thanks so much for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? Same. I mean, I think we're all trying to figure out what the new normal is. And uh, yeah, it's 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 certainly interesting, but uh, powerful. And, and I mean, you know, a time of kind of introspection as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of your work is, is working with the youth. Um, how are you staying connected with them? Yeah. I mean, we you know, at Young Chicago Authors, we're moving all of our programs into a virtual space. And so you know, everything from, you know, the ways people are staying connected. I mean, you know, FaceTime calls to check in on folks, but uh, Zoom platforms and Instagram Live, we've uh, started to do a virtual online prompt. Uh, every day I've been, uh, along with some of my colleagues, we've been using the hashtag YCA still writing and have just putting, I've been putting on some online prompts uh, for students and teachers to use in their e-learning space. And then we still have our Tuesday open mic on, on our Instagram page. Uh, and this past Saturday, we did our first ever uh, class for rappers. It's called Rec Shop. And we, we entered into the Zoom space on that platform, which is really powerful to see people connecting mm -hmm. in these formats. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, overall, how have you been uh, managing the stay-at-home order? You know, for a writer, I, I think it's, uh, I, I'm looking at it as, as a, a long-term residency. And I've been really lucky in, in my career to get a few opportunities to essentially go away to you know remote places and be by myself and delve into my own work and my own study and my own mind and my own body and this is I, i'm learning a lot about this time and it, it's recalling those times for me as a way to kind of focus on an interdiscipline build an inner sanctuary the world is so fast and my, you know my world is so fast as everybody's and the rapidity of time uh begins to slow in these in these spaces and i think it's an opportunity to to rebuild, to refocus on kind of who I am, what do I think, uh, what do I really care about, and to try to prioritize that. And in that regard, I think, you know, there is no real silver lining to any of this, but I, I certainly could imagine that the world wants us to slow down for ourselves, for the planet, and, and probably for one another, you know, to really invest in what is our own internal monologue saying. And then when we show up, for other people to really be in the business of doing some deep and radical listening. Well, you know, um, while most of us are stuck in the house as well as you, what's connecting you to some of your greatest inspirations, you know, the people of Chicago and the neighborhoods they live in? Of course, I mean, Chicago has the best tradition of literature, and so it's it's a good opportunity to read and reread 
uh, some of the heroes and to also discover new voices. But also, I, you know, I've been motivated, you know, by what is happening in cultural spaces online. I mean, you know, over the weekends or even in the evening, I'm hopping around to all these different parties that the homies are throwing DJs. I know who are, you know, putting stuff up on, on yeah. IG or in zoom. And I think I've retired my club card because I'm a grown <laughs> man at this point, but to be able to hop in and out of these spaces uh, has been really powerful to see how people are adapting. I, I think, you know, it's it's grassroots culture that always dictates the future of it, it, it really at the vanguard of the ways we operate. And so I've just been really impressed by, the, you know, the ways certain rapper friends have started virtual ciphers and they kind of pass the word to one another. You know, the way that they've done in playgrounds for, you know, generations now they're doing virtually. And, I, I you know, I've been motivated by seeing young people particularly kind of figure it out, um, ways to connect and, and, and re-up in those spaces. And, and, and I've also been, you know, like anybody, I mean, I'm, I'm going out and trying to keep myself fed and my partner fed. And what's been remarkable is people who a month ago didn't necessarily think of themselves as first responders, people who are in the grocery stores delivering food, you know, running, running these, these tasks and getting paid minimum wage for it. You know, these folks are on the front lines in, in a crisis they didn't imagine themselves would think fighting. And so I've been really impressed with their integrity and, you know, continued uh, necessity to show up to work and grind. Uh, but I, I think it speaks to, to the beauty, the integrity of, of working people. Yeah. I mean, do you have any um, new poems that, that relate to that or, or maybe even some old ones that, that still connect to that idea of what we're living in right now? Yeah, I got I got a new joint that that I, I I've been working on. It's cool. Maybe I'll share. Oh yes, please do. All right. Yeah. So this is this is uh, kind of what I just said. This is uh, owed to the local grocer. Who knows if it's a dream? The big boxes, bare shelves are apropos of their customary stiffness. But my God, the Caribbean market is an island of a shoebox at Broadway and Winona, still flowing with rainbow shard plantain stacked like dominoes. The woman at the register gives me change without flinching, takes a swig of ting like it's rum, savoring the sour burn. Tia Nam is down the street, tucked in little Vietnam with all the eggs and coconut milk, bags of cashews for days, big as stuffed animals you'd win at a carnival. Broccoli and bean paste, old men in masks sweep to keep us safe. A woman asked me to help her get rice noodles from a shelf too high. I hand her three bags. We are almost touching. It's the closest I've been to anyone for days. Edgewater produce is a bounty of avocados, sweet and spicy peppers, rolls of toilet paper on deck. The men who make the aisle sparkle, the rose symmetrical, cans of Goya organic black beans stacked near Sriracha still laugh in the back joke in a language I have trouble deciphering. They are working in the time of a crisis, and they are also humans in need of relief. And the world is not over. The world is not over. Cashiers wear gloves now. There's always been something sick about money, and the stock rooms and checkout counters are full of newcomers who remake America again, anew, amen. Thousands of eminent immigrants, no S on their chest, just workers in the market, no super, a corner store, convenience shop, mini mart, local business, no generic a corporate band, a family strewn through the aisles, cousins in back, backers from the neighborhood on the ready to feed, flan, pho, jerk, curry infusions we've not yet imagined, but the children will slowly over time. And then all of a sudden, star fruit and cabbage, cumin and cinnamon, a new song with old notes and a new world, palettes and people all in together now. 
Ooh, that's a fresh new one from poet Kevin Koval. Right here on Reset, he's published more than a dozen books, including A People's History of Chicago, and he's mentored hundreds of kids over the years as the artistic director of Young Chicago Authors. Kevin, I mean, that, that was a powerful poem. What role do poets or should poets play in a, in a time like this? I think all of us need to seek solace in the things that bring us solace. And, I, you know, I think language and, and emotion and just people's stories, I think, can get to that. I think, you know, I, I believe poetry is everywhere and I believe everyone's a poet. And I think all of us have stories to tell, uh, things that we see in our everyday. I think we need to find the moments of joy, the moments of curiosity and kind of highlight those as opposed to just paying attention to what's on the news. I mean, we should be aware of what's going on in the world. And also we make the world around us. And so I think for me, the poetic, the poetic imagination is, is always helpful, but particularly helpful in these moments because we could be attuned to the, the little things that bring us joy, that make us smile, that give us hope, that, that turn our attention uh, to how people are helping one another in this time of need. Well, we've spent a lot of time on Reset talking about the racial disparities in Chicago through our Closing the Gap series. We talked earlier in the show about the high COVID-19 death rate of black Chicagoans versus white Chicagoans. And you've written and talked about disparities in the city quite a bit over your career. What do you make of all of it? Yeah, I mean, America is America and Chicago is Chicago. This is, this is no different from how it always is. We see the disparities in a particularly a grotesque uh, way in this moment, uh, but it's disparities that have been you know, woven into our system as a city, as a country for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I don't know that it should be surprising. It is, is horrific and it speaks to the need to create equitable space for people to live, to, to thrive. I mean, you know, and uh, not only is, is that infection rate and the death rate high, but you also, you know, who are the folks who are working uh, service sector jobs, who are on the front lines and putting themselves in harm's way because they, they, need, they need that paycheck, you know? And I, I, would, I would imagine, as I've seen, you know, primarily it's, it's, you know, working people, folks of color who are in those positions. And so I think it speaks to, you know, the grotesque nature of white supremacist capitalism. And, you know, we, we have that, of course, inherently built into the structure of our city. Well, um, I want to turn to what uh, you're listening to or reading right now. What what poems or, or music have you turned to during this pandemic? I read a lot of the homies. Um, I'm very excited that today, uh, as we speak, is the publishing uh, date, the pub date for two books that I'm very excited about. There's a uh, Latinx anthology edited by Felicia Rose Chavez, Jose Olivares, and Willie Perdomo in our Breakbeat Poets series. It's... Uh, 60, 70, 80 poets from across the Latinx diaspora that that comes out today. Also, the homie uh, Christopher Franklin has a book that is published uh, today called uh, Too Much Midnight. And it's a collection of her poems and uh, and her collages and, and some of her artwork artwork. And Krista is someone whose work I think is really important in this moment because she is creating and playing in the space uh, that I think she thinks of aesthetically as a kind of Afrofuturism. 
And I think one of the things we need creatives for now is to imagine a future that is different than this reality. Speaking to the inequities that, that you've been discussing, that we've been talking about, uh, we need creatives, we need artists, we need working people, we need folks of color to imagine a future that is different than this mm -hmm. one because this one has certainly been imagined. And so it's on us to do that kind of radical reimagining, to live into a space that is you know, more just, equitable, robust, and fresher for everybody. Well, I don't know if you've got a, a short one that can um, hold us through for, for the rest of this pandemic, Kevin, but do, do you have a poem that we could go out on? I got, I got a quick one for one of the young homies. I've revisited it this week. It's called Magic Awesome Everywhere for uh, my young homie, Maddie. It goes like this. Poems can be made every day. There is art and awesome everywhere. Today you said, poet, make a poem about buildings. My girl's niece visiting from the middle of Illinois, a small town near the state school, a skyline of soybeans. We had salty tofu in Chinatown and could see the old Sears renamed. What you talking about, Willis Tower? You remembered it's bigger than Big John driving on LSD. You want to know the names of all the buildings, the one with the crown, the one with the diamond. And though I'm sure they all have names, their companies bought them. I prefer the ones you offered. The best part of this day was when we walked the dog at night and I told you there was something cool coming up on the corner. So you close your eyes so it would be a surprise and grab my hand until we came across the giant tree at Leland and Manor where a dozen bird houses, buildings of all sizes hang like gravity doesn't exist. A mini sky world lit, street lights, a few stars twinkling and planes soaring into O'Hare. You gasped at this beauty, this quiet poem in Albany Park, these tiny buildings floating, this magic awesome everywhere. That was poet and educator Kevin Koval. And that's a wrap for today's Reset. For the latest news about COVID-19 in Chicago and beyond, tune in to 91.5 WBEZ or stream us at WBEZ.org or on the WBEZ app. I'm Susie Ahn. Jen's back tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Chicago.